Alright, so up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has just called his first disciples. And he had embarked upon a ministry of proclamation, of both proclamation and compassion. If you notice, you go back to verses 23 to 25, you will see that Jesus came teaching in the synagogues and he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And at the same time, he was healing those who came to him of every kind of affliction, of every kind of pain and every kind of disease. And in so doing, he revealed both his power and his authority over every kind of suffering, over every kind of trouble, over every kind of misery. And listen, saints in the Lord, good news. Jesus is still the Lord over each and every one of these. And so no one of them, none of them, if you are experiencing any of them, are wasted. Pray to the Lord Jesus Christ, plead with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will answer you one way or another. He will say, my grace, is made my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness, or he will heal. He still heals. Either he will respond to your prayers by delivering you or healing you from your hardship, or he will let you stay in that hardship as he develops you and as he grows you into the image of Christ. In this particular circumstance here in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus actually healing people. He healed the people of diseases. He healed them of pains. He healed them of de demonic oppression of, from seizures and paralysis. And as a result, his fame spread far and wide. And people came to him from all over. You see that right in the text. They came from all around, from Galilee, from the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from far beyond the Jordan. And so now you've got these crowds gathering around Jesus. And remember, these are different types of crowds, right? As we looked at the text last week when Jesus called his disciples, we learned that the following of the disciples is different than the following of the crowds. The crowds followed Jesus because he was giving them stuff. The crowds followed Jesus because they thought they could get things from him, whereas the disciples, they gave up things to follow Jesus. They dropped their nets, they left their father, they dropped their boats, and they went in total submission to Jesus. But these crowds, they haven't fully submitted themselves. And later on, we'll see that when they, when, they, when they think that Jesus isn't quite the cash cow that they thought he was, they all walk away, they all leave him. But the crowds are here right now. They're from all over the place, and they are following Jesus from one place to another. And so how will Jesus respond to these crowds? Later on, in the Gospel of Matthew, we are actually given an insight into the disposition of Christ as he looked upon all of the crowds of people who came to him. You see it in Matthew 9.36. It says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We see the great compassion of our Savior. We see the great compassion of our Lord Jesus for the crowds. It wasn't displayed in their physical healing, but it was displayed in his call to his disciples. It was displayed in his call to us to pray for the Lord to send out workers into the field. Or in other words, to ask the Lord to send out witnesses into this world with the gospel to save all who believe. And this is why he chose the 12. This is why as he walked along the beaches of Galilee and saw Peter and Andrew and saw James and John, he says, drop your nets, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. He called them from their professions, to the role, to the task of not casting nets for fish, but casting nets of the gospel to the unsaved. But as of yet, these disciples aren't ready. And they wouldn't be ready until after the ascension of Jesus Christ and the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So on this day, look at the text. It says, Jesus sat down in verse 1. This is the rabbinical method. Rabbis tended to sit down and teach. And the people would stand in front of him or the crowds would stand in front of them and they would listen or they would sit as well. Jesus sat down to teach the people as he would do for the next three years of his life. Look at verse 1 again. Seeing the crowds, 
he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So this sermon on the mount is specifically designated or designed for the, the disciples who are actually following him in the submission sense. But he preaches it with an earshot of all of the crowds who also need to hear everything that Jesus is teaching. And then you see that little phrase, he went up on the mountain. It's very mosaic, isn't it? In Exodus 24, verse 12, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for there, that's Israel's instruction. And then in verse 15, we read, Moses then went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Now, when the Lord gave Moses the law to give to the people of Israel, what was the point of it? What was the point of that law? What was the purpose of the law that had been given to Israel through Moses? Let me just be clear. It was not given as a path or a way for Israel to actually be saved. The New Testament makes this abundantly clear because the Apostle Paul, who is speaking to Jews who believed that they could be saved or could be righteous before God by their strict observance to the law, Paul said this to them in Romans chapter 3. He said, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And now listen, doesn't get any clearer than this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." And this culminates in one of the most famous universal assessments in all of Scripture. We all know it. We've all memorized it. Romans 3.23. You know it, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the idea here is every single human being, without exception, without distinction, all of us, everyone, all throughout the world that's ever existed, except for Jesus, all of them, have suppressed what they know about God, whether in nature or in the law, as revealed through Moses. Every single person has disobeyed. No human being, aside from Jesus, who is God in the flesh, has ever attained a perfect obedience to the law of God. And now here comes Jesus, and he goes up on the mountain, and like Moses, he speaks the authoritative word of God to the people who are gathered at the base of this mountain. However, this time... In Christ, we see something new. We see a new day dawning. We can see that there's something different in him, something more wonderful in him. You remember the scene at Sinai, right? In Exodus 19, we are told this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had left Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp before the mountain there. And the Lord, he called out to Moses from the mountain saying, this is, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and this is what you will tell the people of Israel. And look, in verse nine, chapter 19, verses 3 to 6 of Exodus, you read this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a, a tre- my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so then Moses, he gathers together all of the elders of Israel and the people of Israel to tell them all that the Lord had revealed to him. And he told them that the people must prepare. The Lord revealed to them that they must prepare for the encounter. Prepare for an encounter. Prepare for the arrival of the Lord. And the preparations included two days of consecrating yourself. Washing all of the clothes so that they were pristine. The clothes that you would wear as you approach the mountain. Wash them all so that they are pristine and clean. But not only that, they had to put limits around the base of the mountain. They had to ensure that nobody moved too close to the mountain. Why? Verse 19. This is what the Lord said to the people. Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. 
but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. The arrival of the Lord in the midst of Israel was of such magnitude that if someone or some animal got too close and touched even the edge of the mountain, they were to be put to death. But the magnitude was also so great that the per- that animal or that person who was to be put to death couldn't actually be touched by another person. They had to be stoned or shot from a distance. They needed to shoot the culprit. And after all of this preparation, after all of this consecration, after all of this washing, the Lord descended on the third day, on the morning of the third day. And we read about the picture. Imagine this picture. Exodus 19, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. And it's in this context of the the ever-increasing volume of the trumpet. It's in this context of the Lord speaking thunderously from the mountain that the Ten Commandments were relayed to the people. What a spectacular yet terrifying scene from which God speaks the law to the people. And now here in Matthew 5, Jesus went up the mountain. But unlike Sinai, where the Lord's voice thundered, Jesus opens his mouth and speaks in a distinctly human voice. Unlike Sinai, where people were told to keep their distance because the unmediated holiness of God would have utterly destroyed them had they come too close, here is Jesus clothed in human flesh so that we might behold him and he invites the crowds to come near to the mountain and to, as he sat down to teach them the law of the Lord. You can imagine wonderful Jesus, God in the flesh, sitting on this mountain, not speaking from thunder, but saying, come, come and hear the word of the Lord. Come, you shepherdless sheep. Come, all of you who are sick and all of you who are afflicted. Come, all of you who are harassed and all of you who are helpless. Come and hear God's words. They are filled, full of life and full of blessing and full of abundance. Come and have a seat and hear the law of the Lord. In Christ, all of us are invited to sit at the foot of a new mountain, to hear the words of the one who by his righteous life makes all who believe in him righteous in the sight of God by grace through faith. And this is the writer of Hebrews picks up on this theme, this theme of two mountains, the old terrifying mountain and the new mountain of being made righteous in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 24, we read this. This is is the reality for us as New Testament believers. He says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you, New Testament believer, New Covenant believer, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus went up on this mountain on this day as the one who brings the new covenant to the people. Jesus goes up, He went up on the mountain this day as the new and greater Moses to speak to the people, not simply on behalf of God, but as God himself. 
Jesus went up on the mountain as the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, as prophesied by the Lord through Moses. Listen to what Moses, the Lord said through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And here is that prophet risen up, going up onto the mountain and seating, sitting himself there. The prophet is here. He is teaching the people. And teach he does. The words, like I said, that come here from the mouth of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ are or constitute the single greatest sermon that has ever been preached in the history of our world. And what is the point of the sermon? It's very similar to that which is given to us through Moses. To help us see, to help us understand that our, we are sinful to help us understand our inability to live up to the perfect demands of God's righteous law and therefore to help us understand our desperate need for a Savior who has arrived. The Savior sits on this mountain on this day and offers forgiveness and offers eternal life to all who come to Him in faith and repentance. And so here, the first section of the sermon consists in what we call the Beatitudes, right? The Beatitudes, a very famous section of Scripture. The problem for us is that these Beatitudes have suffered greatly at the hands of bad theologians over the years. Roughly a century ago, we witnessed the rise of what today is commonly known as the social gospel, The basic idea of the social gospel is that the concepts that we hold dear, like repentance and sin and salvation and heaven and hell, they thought they were wildly unhelpful to those who live in a world where poverty, injustice, inequity, crime, and evil seem to reign supreme. And so they turned from the emphasis on actually proclaiming salvation by grace through faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ... They scrubbed all efforts of God, or all mention of God's holiness, all mention of humanity as sinners in need of salvation, all, uh, all uh, discussion about the eternal future that awaits those who reject the offer of salvation held to them in Christ. They rejected and stopped preaching the necessity of repentance and instead focused their energy and focused their efforts into alleviating the current, present, physical sufferings of humanity by applying to them what they thought to be the ethics, the principles, and the moral teachings of Jesus. And one of the foundational texts used by the social gospel movement was the Beatitudes. And they interpret this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as him singling out certain groups of disenfranchised people in the world and promising blessings to them simply based on the fact that they are disenfranchised. You've probably heard it, right? Ideas such as God favors the poor, God sides with the poor, and this for no other reason than the fact that they are poor. Is that true? Does God side with the poor simply because they are poor? No. While it is true that Jesus was and is the most compassionate man to ever walk the earth, that he was and he is the most merciful man to ever live among us, revealing his mercy and his compassion and his care for and healing of the sick and the afflicted, his primary work, The primary reason for his arrival here was caring for their and our spiritual need. Caring for our souls and their eternal destination. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to redeem souls out from under the grip and power of sin. The great concern of Christ in his earthly ministry was not social issues. Jesus did not go around preaching revolutions. He didn't go around preaching social reform or social justice. He didn't go around preaching political upheaval. Instead, he preached and he calls on every single one of us to preach the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in his name to all people. He pointed 
And he calls on us to point people to the kingdom of God, calling on everyone to enter. Submit yourself to the king. Bow your knee to the king and enter into the kingdom of heaven. He preached and he calls on us to preach and proclaim God's delivering, saving power in the gospel along with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and in the lives of all who come to him in faith. And this Sermon on the Mount is no different. It is born out of the content of Christ's preaching up to this point. And you remember, right, what Christ's preaching was? Matthew 4, 17. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, many will say that the Beatitudes single out different groups of people and promises blessing to each one because of their impoverished condition. But that is not what's happening in the Beatitudes. Instead, Jesus begins his sermon by answering a question that might arise among those who have heard the content of his preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the next question is, well, what are the signs of one who has truly repented? What are the signs of one who has truly believed the message of Jesus? The answer? The Beatitudes. Here Jesus describes the virtues. He describes the characteristics present in those who both believe in and respond to his call for repentance. Here in the Beatitudes, we are not introduced to eight separate groups of blessed people. We are introduced to one and the same group, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as Jesus reveals the blessedness of kingdom citizens, you will notice that those who are blessed, or those that Jesus pronounces blessing on, stand in complete contrast or contradict all human evaluations, right? If you go to someone and say, hey, would you consider someone who mourns blessed? What do you think the answer is going to be? No. Would you consider someone who is persecuted blessed? Mm, probably not. Would you consider someone who's poor in spirit blessed? Mm, no, I don't think so. Why is that? Why would we not consider these people blessed? It's because we have taught, been taught to see blessing differently. When you hear that someone is blessed, what comes to your mind? If you listen to the world and you hear them say, man, they are blessed, what do you think they're talking about? If you listen to the prosperity preachers who preach about blessing, what do they say is blessed? Well, they'll tell you it's financial abundance. It's fame. It's ease. It's health. It's pleasure. While there are times when these are, in fact, the blessings and good gifts of God in the life of one of his children, they are no guarantee that you are blessed. In fact, there are times when these can be the very opposite of blessing as they choke your spiritual life and as they take your eyes off dependence to the Lord and put your eyes on yourself as you grow in pride and arrogance. So when we come to the Beatitudes, we must realize that they characterize the blessed children of God and they run counter to the world's values. And while you can go out into the world and you can probably hear the world paying lip service to these, I mean, nobody out in the world is going to say, you know what I really hate? Peacemaking! You know what I despise? Mercy. While they would never say those things, listen to the world and the way it talks. Listen to what the world says about advancement and blessing. The world is all about advancing self, growing in pride, growing in arrogance. I mean, you've heard it, right? Assert yourself. Love yourself. Stand up for yourself. Be proud of yourself. Elevate yourself. Defend yourself. Indulge yourself. Serve yourself. You can hear all of those when you listen to the world, right? All of which betrays the attitude of the citizens of the kingdom found in the very first beatitude, which is, look at verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this particular beatitude, more than any other, has been used to promote the social gospel. And this because when you read the gospel of Luke, 
In his accounting of the same beatitude, he simply leaves it as this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And this has led to many to believe that there is some sort of advantage or some sort of merit before the Lord based on the simple fact that you're poor. Let's just dispel that notion right now. Poverty in and of itself is not virtuous or it's not sinful. The Old Testament makes a distinction between a number of different reasons for poverty. And the judgments for each one vary. So for example, let me give you a couple of examples. For example, there are a number of people who will experience poverty as a result of some disaster that falls on them through no fault of their own. Scripture makes no judgment, positive or negative, about such a situation. I actually had a conversation this week with a man who sat in front of me. He was a barbershop owner. And he sat in front of me and tears started rolling down his eyes as he started telling me about the fact that he had to close his business because he hasn't been able to open in five months. He closed because of a calamity that fell upon him that is not through any fault of his own. There is no judgment about his situation, whether positive or negative, spiritually speaking. There are also those who find themselves impoverished as a result of their own laziness in the Old Testament. Now for these, the judgments of the Lord are severe. And then there are those who are poor for the sake of righteousness, meaning those who forsake the riches of the world and live a hand-to-mouth existence because they decided to live for the Lord and to minister for the Lord, and these are met with blessing. So you see, in this situation here, you've got three different types of poverty and three different judgments or lack thereof about poverty. So poverty in and of itself is neither virtuous nor sinful on its own. It is neither a sign of good nor the sign of a curse. And this is a betrayal of the fundamental reason for uh, people believing the social gospel. But even more, Matthew clarifies what Luke means in this beatitude when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. So who are the poor in spirit? Well, it has nothing to do with your physical poverty and everything to do with the recognition of one's standing before God. It has nothing to do with your physical poverty and everything to do with your standing before God. This is the first step to becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty apart from the grace and the mercy of God. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that before God they are spiritually destitute and they need Him, they depend on Him for their salvation. Poverty of spirit in this context is a, pro, a, a poverty of self-pride and arrogance. You see, those who believe that they're good, that they can somehow enter the kingdom of God based on their good works, those who trust in their own righteousness to secure God's favor, these are the opposite of the poor in spirit, but instead are the proud in spirit the arrogant in spirit. The epitome of pride and arrogance is to think that we could ever win the affection of God or the salvation of God by our works. That we could ever turn God's favor towards us by things that we do. That is the height of arrogance and the height of proud pride. To think that we could ever live up to the perfect standard of God that he has revealed to us in scripture. Those who would enter into the kingdom, those who are citizens of the kingdom, are those who are convinced of their spiritual poverty, those whose pride is broken, those who realize their helplessness and turn to the Lord for help and deliverance because you can't do it on your own, because you recognize that it's impossible for you to do it on your own. You throw yourself at God's mercy. 
The poor in spirit recognize their complete and total bankruptcy before the Lord and recognize that we have nothing in ourselves to offer Him. We recognize, they recognize, the poor in spirit recognize that even the best of our deeds, the best things that you've ever done in your life are as nothing before Him. We have nothing in us that deserves anything other than his just and righteous wrath. We are in desperate need of Christ's righteousness. We are in desperate need of Christ's atonement for our sins at the cross, without which all of us would be hopeful, hopeless. And this is why Christ took on flesh and lived among us, to bring us hope. This is what was prophesied through the prophets in the Old Testament. For example, we read Isaiah prophesying 800 years before the fact, saying, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me, speaking about the coming Messiah, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, not the physically poor, the poor in spirit, those who recognize their need for the mercy of God. It is to these that the Lord looks in favor, the contrite, the humble, the ones who come to the Lord in dependence upon him. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah again says in chapter 57, verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, God, this is what God says, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. And again in 66 verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the Lord speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. And one of the great New Testament examples of this idea of being poor in spirit is given to us by Jesus in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, 9 to 14. Now listen, if you are looking for a text to memorize, if you are looking for a, te- a portion of scripture to hide in your heart, to reflect upon, this is it. Write this one down, memorize it, and continue to dwell on it. Listen to this. Listen to Jesus' parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see that? One of the two men in this parable, the tax collector, understood what it means to be contrite, remorseful, and repentant before the Lord. One of these men was poor in spirit and recognized their complete lack of righteousness before God. Only one understood that their hands were empty of anything to offer the Lord. And the other man in the parable, the Pharisee, considered the tax collector nothing more than a wretch, a person most contemptible, and he cataloged his list of deeds upon which he assumed that God loved him more than this tax collector. However, Jesus makes it clear, didn't he? Isn't it absolutely clear? It is not the self-righteous Pharisee who goes home justified. Because he had not the slightest clue of his position before the Lord. He had not the slightest clue of his state in the eyes of God. 
And anyone, anyone, not just this Pharisee, but anyone who can enter into the presence of God and who can glory in themselves in his presence rather than fall flat on their faces before his holiness has far too high a view of themselves and far too small a view of their God. Now look, as we walk around as those who understand our wretched state before the Lord, who understand our need for God's mercy, the world is going to look at us and they're going to say, what a pitiable and wretched bunch of people. As we approach the Lord head down in recognition of our complete and total dependence upon Him, as we recognize who and what we are, sinners unworthy of absolutely anything, who plead and pray for His mercy, You and I are sinners who are unworthy of the grace of God. Sinners with no merit or goodness before God in ourselves. Sinners in whom God's image is corrupted beyond recognition. Sinners who can do nothing but fall on our faces before God and plead for His mercy. But according to Jesus recognizing this state of wretchedness and casting ourselves at the feet of, of the Lord, it's a blessing. You see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a blessing that has been given to us. It has been given to us to understand the wonders of Jesus. Us wretched sinners have been given this mercy of God to understand our state before Him and to throw our feet at Him to beat our chest and say, God, be merciful to me is a blessing. Blessed are those who turn to Christ and live in hope as a result. Blessed are those who, who beat their chests and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And know this, that when you do, God answers you by forgiving your sin and clothing you with the righteous perfection of Christ. Is there any higher and greater blessing? But for those who continue to believe that they are righteous before God as a result of their self-defined good hearts, I've heard that before, those who refuse to recognize their poverty before the Lord, woe, woe to you. Woe to those who think they can stand before God and appeal to their self-righteousness. Woe to those who think that because they might give more than another person like the Pharisee did. Or those who might think, I haven't committed as terrible a sin as this person, like the Pharisee did. Or because they perform more spiritual disciplines than the person beside them does, like the Pharisee did. Woe to them who thinks that it's because of these things that they, the Lord will exalt them or accept them. Woe to everyone who thinks like this because you have not learned poverty of the Spirit. You are not one of the blessed citizens of Christ's kingdom. Learn poverty of spirit. It is a true blessing. Look at the tax collector. If he wanted to be like the Pharisee, he could have. He could have found someone who sinned more than him. Isn't there always someone who sins more than you that you could look to? He could have justified himself. We are masters at this. We are masters of self-justification, aren't we? I can, and I know all of you can too, no matter what we do, twist it around and turn it around in our minds so that we come out smelling like roses rather than garbage, right? We need to smell the garbage. It stinks real bad. We can always find a bigger sinner than ourselves by which to make ourselves feel better when we compare ourselves with them. But the tax collector doesn't do that. Neither does he look at the Pharisee and say, oh man, I fall far short of his standard of godliness. No. The tax collector does what we should all do. Forget comparing yourself to those around you, whether better or worse. The only comparison that we need to be making is against the perfect law and standard of God. The very standard that every one of us is judged by whether Pharisee or tax collector, the very standard that none of us, whether Pharisee or tax collector, can ever live up to. And the tax collector, in recognizing that he falls so short of this standard, begs God for mercy as he understands his 
sinful stench. The poor in spirit are broken of their pride before the Lord. They are, as David wrote in Psalm 32, not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit or bridle. No, the poor in spirit, they're broken horses with no need of a bit or a bridle. Now, as believers, as those saved by grace through faith in the Lord, we can easily turn into the Pharisees, can't we? We can easily be taken in by the fact or by the, by the notion or the thought that we are better, smarter, more spiritual than others who don't give as much as we do or know as much as we do. Isn't it quite easy for us to turn into the Pharisee who stands at the temple thanking God that we aren't like that lesser person over there? It's a temptation that arises in my mind sometimes. Throughout yours, your Christian life and my Christian life, this will be a constant temptation a temptation to arrogance and pride rather than an increased recognition of our poverty and in spirit apart from the mercy of Christ. So it is this poverty of spirit that we must keep in the forefront of our minds. It is placed at the beginning of the Beatitudes for a reason because without it, two things will occur. We One, we will default to works-based righteousness and grow in arrogance and pride. But not only that, it will impact the way, if we lose sight of this first beatitude and our poverty of spirit before the Lord, it will impact the way we treat and the way we think about those around us. And this will be made clear as we look through the other beatitudes over the next weeks. They all build on one another, revealing, much like the Ten Commandments did in Exodus 20, the way citizens of the kingdom live in reference to God and live in reference to those around them. But recognition of our poverty in spirit is the vital first step. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but it's good for us to be reminded of this fact. The longer you are a Christian, the more you will realize your poverty of spirit before the Lord. And this is a good thing. It's a blessed thing. Because the more we recognize our depravity, the more we recognize our utter bankruptcy before God apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, the more we understand just how destitute and empty we were before we came to know Jesus Christ, the greater and more precious our salvation is, the greater and more precious our understanding of the gospel is. And the, uh, the Apostle Paul is my favorite example of this. I know I've used this before, but listen. The Apostle Paul was a man who persecuted the church, who approved of the murder and the persecution of early Christians, a man who might very well have been part of the sham trial that sent Jesus to the cross. And when Christ knocked Paul off his horse, Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And Christ saved Paul that day and sent him on a mission to the Gentiles. And Paul became an ambassador of the name that he once sought to eliminate. And early on in his ministry, Paul's humility shone through. He revealed himself to be a man who's understand, who understood that he is one with poverty of spirit. In 1 Corinthians 1, 15-9, we read this. Paul, when thinking about himself as an apostle with the other apostles, said this, I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, time went on. And Paul ministered in a number of different places. And throughout his life, he grew closer to the Lord. But it wasn't his pride that grew, was it? But instead, it was the recognition of his poverty of spirit before the Lord that grew. As he reflected on the grace of God in his life, as he was nearing the end of his life to the church in Ephesus, he wrote this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Did you catch it? Paul's progression was not from the least of the apostles to maybe the fourth or fifth best one. His progression was that of increasing recognition of his poverty of spirit before the Lord as he in ever-increasing measure concluded that he was a far greater sinner than he could have ever imagined he was. 
But it didn't stop there. Paul's progression in recognizing his spiritual poverty continued to grow, right? And we have this idea that as we grow in our faith, we should be thinking higher thoughts of ourselves, better thoughts of ourselves. No, as we grow in our faith, our understanding of the greatness of Jesus grows because we understand that we're worse than we could have ever imagined, that we are so destitute before him. It's Jesus that gets bigger and bigger and bigger throughout our Christian life. And he wrote to the to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church in 1 Timothy, later on, saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners and listen, of whom I am the foremost, or depending on your translation, I am the chief of all sinners. Do you see his progression? Least of the saints, or least of the apostles, least of the saints, chief of all sinners, and with each increasing recognition of his poverty in spirit, the wonders of Jesus grew ever larger in his mind. Paul isn't just the least of the apostles. He is the chief of all sinners. Now that's a man who kneels before the Lord and pleads, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the blessing of coming to this conclusion, the blessing of recognizing your helplessness and the depth of your sinfulness before God is that your understanding of the forgiveness of God, your understanding of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your understanding of the treasure of his mercy, you realize that it's far greater than you could have ever imagined. And it is these who recognize their spiritual poverty before the Lord that Jesus calls blessed. It is these, ironically, who know true happiness and true joy. It is these, the ones who acknowledge that God is great and I am nothing, that God is holy and I am sinful, that God is good and I am depraved. It is these to whom Jesus says, Oh, you are blessed. Oh, saints who know their condition. Oh, saints who beat their chest and cry out for God's mercy. You are blessed. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You see that? The next line. That's what Jesus said. Yours, theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is given to these and these alone. The kingdom in this context is salvation and all of the blessings that come from faith and a bowed knee to King Jesus. Is there any greater blessing than that of salvation? Is there any greater blessing than being brought into the family of God through Jesus Christ? Is there any greater joy than being a child of Christ who loves to dispense mercy, who loves to dispense grace upon those who call out to him for it? Is there any greater blessing than to be the subject of King Jesus? While the world is going to go out and say, blessed are the rich. And while the world is out there satisfying themselves with their abundance in this life, we who have been given the grace, God's grace in Christ, recognize that the world's blessings, they vanish like a mist. We recognize that the soul of a person is not simple enough to be truly satisfied by anything in this world. It can only be satisfied by entrance into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't matter what we experience in this world the truly blessed we are the ones that are truly blessed with riches the angel at the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2 said as much saying to them I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich why because they knew Jesus but the angel in the church at Laodicea looking at the worldly wealth of the congregation said this, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from, from me, gold refined in the fire, so that you might become rich. Worldly riches are not true riches. The grace of Christ is true riches. Oh, the blessedness of those who recognize their poverty of spirit. 
For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. So here's my question to you. Have you recognized your state before God apart from the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand that you have nothing to offer him, that you are far more wicked than you could have ever imagined? Have you concluded that in his sight you are not righteous on your own apart from him? You don't understand. You have turned aside. You are altogether worthless. You don't do good, as Paul revealed in Romans 3, which is what all humans are. If you have, good news. Good news. There is hope for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Oh, how blessed and oh, how happy it is for us to know that we have nothing to offer the Lord but to be given the opportunity and the blessing to be able to beat our chest and cry out to Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know why? Because that mercy that you're asking for, Jesus loves to give it. He will give it to you. And there is nothing better than that. So world, keep your riches. My joy is in Christ who is gracious and merciful to everyone who recognizes their need for him, to everyone who is poor in spirit, to everyone who runs to him and faith in faith and repentance. To him be the glory. Amen. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory. We beat our chests before you this morning in recognition of the fact that we come to you with empty hands. We come to you with nothing to offer you that could ever secure your favor. And we throw ourselves at your mercy and we throw ourselves um, before you in recognition of the fact that the only thing, the only thing that we can claim is the atoning work of Christ on the cross and the righteousness that he gives us by grace through faith in him. Have mercy on us, Lord. Shower us with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are the one who took on flesh and made your dwelling among us so that we might be saved as we run to Christ. And I pray that if anyone hasn't run to Christ, I pray that they would right now. This message of recognizing that we are not good is a difficult one for this world to hear. So I pray that your spirit would be knocking down all of the barriers to hearing that message. And I pray that anyone listening here this morning would recognize that they are destitute before him and the only thing that they can claim is Christ. We thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.